Today's Remembrance Sunday um, reading will be taken from the book of Romans, starting at chapter 12, verse 9. You can find that in the Bibles that can be found on the pews at the end of the rows on page 1139. And it starts, love in action. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honour one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervour, serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless And do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, It is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Kirsty. I have to say, as the wreath was being laid just now, and I was sitting here on the front row viewing the scene through the perspex silhouettes of the fallen and the lost, with the poppies scattered on the floor here. It was profoundly moving. And on Remembrance Sunday, we acknowledge and honor the courage and sacrifice of those who served this country in two world wars and in various theaters of war since then. And of course, we also hold in our thoughts and prayers those in our armed forces and emergency services who continue to protect us against acts of war or terror that threaten the freedom and the values that we cherish. But this act of remembrance, of remembering, is not simply the opposite of forgetting. This annual commemoration has a deeper purpose. It is an opportunity to be both thankful and vigilant. Firstly, thankful. Thankful to God that despite the real and significant challenges that we face... We live in a prosperous, democratic country with rights and freedoms that many others around the world do not enjoy. But we must also be vigilant. Remembrance Sunday is an annual opportunity to to reflect and to take stock. Because if we are to truly honor the fallen, then we have to continually revisit the lessons that these terrible conflicts have taught us and acknowledge our responsibility to maintain and build on the peace and freedom that others have fought so hard to achieve. 
So I'd like to spend a few minutes just looking back at the two great wars of the 20th century to essentially compare and contrast what happened in the immediate aftermath of the cessation of hostilities. On June the 5th, 1947, U.S. Secretary of State George C. Marshall delivered a speech from the steps of Memorial Church at Harvard University in which he outlined an ambitious plan for the rebuilding of Europe in the aftermath of World War II. It was called the European Recovery Program, and it involved the U.S. investing around $12 billion into the rebuilding of Western Europe's main economies, regardless of which side they were on in the war. The ERP soon became better known as simply the Marshall Plan. And in his speech on that day in June, Marshall said this, It is logical that the United States should do whatever it is able to do to assist in the return of normal economic health to the world, without which there can be no political stability and no assured peace. Our policy is not directed against any country, but against hunger, poverty, desperation, and chaos. Now, it wasn't an entirely altruistic act, there was the usual opposition and horse trading in the U.S. Congress, which led to the initial planned investment being significantly reduced. Europe was pretty much forced to spend a significant part of that investment on U.S.-produced goods and services. And the plan was clearly designed also to stop communism spreading through Western Europe. However, after four years, the Marshall Plan had exceeded all expectations, and every participating European country, including ours, saw their economies surpass pre-war levels. Hunger and starvation did rapidly diminish. Now, historians still debate how much of this was attributable to the Marshall Plan, but it's undeniable that it helped to stabilize the continent, expedited growth, and laid the foundations for the formation of the European Economic Community in the late 1950s, and ultimately, of course, the EU, an institution which seems to have been in the news quite a lot recently. Now, whatever your views on the current European Union, it's hard to deny that the cooperation post-World War II with the Marshall Plan as a significant catalyst has led to over 70 years of peace and prosperity across Western Europe. During the Second World War, Marshall had risen through the ranks of the U.S. Army to become chief of staff under Roosevelt and Truman. He was said to be a quiet Christian who attended army chapels as an example for his troops. And he used to joke that his mother was a Republican, his father a Democrat, while he was an Episcopalian. Marshall was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize in 1953, and in his acceptance speech, he said this, there's been considerable comments over the awarding of the Nobel Peace Prize to a soldier. I'm afraid this does not seem as remarkable to me as it evidently does to others. As chairman of the American Battle Monuments Commission, the cost of war in human lives is constantly spread before me, written neatly in many ledgers whose columns are gravestones. I am deeply moved to find some means or method of avoiding another calamity of war. Almost daily I hear from the wives or mothers or families of the fallen. The tragedy of the aftermath is almost constantly before me. 
Well, after the, first, the, the past few years of, of commemoration surrounding 100 years since World War I, this year, as Tom mentioned earlier, of course, marks the 80th anniversary of the outbreak of World War II. Looking back now, it is indeed hard to comprehend how, after the horror and devastation of the Great War, the so-called war to end all wars, Europe and the world was within 20 years engulfed in yet another tragic conflict. But Marshall, who had fought in World War I, was acutely aware of the toxic environment that had been created in Europe after World War I. And he wanted desperately to see the U.S. assist in avoiding a repeat. Now, as you may know, the formal end of World War I was marked by the signing of the Treaty of Versailles in June 1919. The treaty required Germany to accept full blame for the war, pay all costs of reparation to the tune of around $30 billion, which at the time was a huge proportion of their national output, to destroy its military assets and transfer territory to other countries. In particular, the loss of territory to Poland, which cut off East Prussia from the rest of the country, caused outrage in Germany. The treaty was signed by Germany essentially through gritted teeth and viewed as a national humiliation. Even British economist John Maynard Keynes, who was a delegate to the Paris Peace Conference, predicted that the treaty was too harsh and said the reparations figure was excessive and counterproductive. The following years of hardship gave birth to a new wave of nationalism, to the rise of Hitler and the Nazi regime. And as the phrase that Roy used earlier is true here, the rest, as they say, is history. Now... I would be the first to admit that I have generalized some fairly complex situations here to make a point. But here we have two world wars with two very different approaches by the victors in the aftermath, leading to two very different outcomes. One approach was essentially punitive and driven by revenge. The other was conciliatory and driven by a desire to see a lasting peace. Now, I think we can all identify with the urge to take revenge. It's a natural human instinct to want to strike back at those who have hurt us. It's a popular theme in books and films because we love to see people get what they deserve. But as we've heard this morning in our scripture reading, it is not an option for those who want to follow the way of Christ. St. Paul, writing to the church in Rome, is very explicit in his instructions. Bless those who persecute you. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. As far as it depends on you, be at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Morally, practically, this is tough teaching. It sets the bar very high. But as Christian writer Tom Wright points out, revenge keeps evil in circulation. An act of vengeance sets off a never-ending, often escalating cycle of wrongdoing that constantly fuels its own fire. And when that happens, there are no winners. There are no winners, only losers. And even if revenge is not enacted, then the desire to take revenge can leave us as victims, bitter and twisted and left unchecked, can lead to all sorts of emotional and mental damage. Now, St. Paul is not saying that we should not confront 
evil or be soft in the face of evil or let someone get away with it. He's simply saying that revenge is not our responsibility. We should leave it to God. It is mine to avenge. I will repay, says God. Or some will remember in the old translations, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. When and how God will act is not for us to know, but we must have faith that good will ultimately prevail. And this isn't just rooted in wishful thinking. It's an acknowledgement of the reality of what God has already done. Because when Jesus died on the cross, God took that full weight of evil on himself. And now we live in a post-resurrection world where evil and death are defeated. And it might not look that way when we watch the TV news. But that hope is at the very center of the Christian gospel. And that's why Paul can say with such certainty, we should not fight evil with evil. We should overcome evil with good because that is exactly what happened when the good Christ confounded all expectations by walking out of the tomb on that Easter day, victorious over death. Now, without doubt, choosing reconciliation over revenge is the narrow path. It's the hardest one to navigate. The Marshall Plan was not a fully realized model of reconciliation, but it was at least a step in that direction. It was certainly more conciliatory and ultimately effective than what happened after World War I. And its instigator was a man following his Christian principles. But true reconciliation requires a willingness by all parties to heal broken relationships, to openly speak the truth and acknowledge past harms that have been committed, a willingness to take active steps to redress wrongs and to seek and accept forgiveness. And following these biblical principles is difficult enough for us to do at a personal level, Can they really be achieved at a national or international level? Well, if we look back at the recent past, then perhaps we would look to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa as an example. This was established at the end of the apartheid era in 1995. Nelson Mandela was by then president of the country, and he appointed Archbishop Desmond Tutu as chair of the commission. How did that work? Well, witnesses who were identified as victims of human rights violations were invited to give statements about their experiences. Some were selected for public hearings. Even perpetrators of violence could give testimony and request amnesty from prosecution. It was a very bold initiative and not without significant challenges and limitations. Many black South Africans were angered by the amnesties that were offered Most notably and famously, perhaps, the family of Stephen Biko, the activist killed by security police. They felt they'd been robbed of justice. However, the truth and reconciliation process was generally considered successful, particularly for its transparency and its public participation. It was hailed as an innovative model for building peace and justice and for holding accountable people who were guilty of human rights violations. And at the same time, it's laid the foundations for reconciliation among all South Africans. Many of the countries dealing with post-conflict issues have instituted a similar approach. And one other example I want to give you, which is a little bit different and a little closer to home, But many of you here will know about Flame International, the UK-based Christian charity run by our very own Jan Ransom. 
They take teams of volunteers into war-torn countries like the DRC and South Sudan to offer healing for emotional and spiritual damage caused by conflict and depression and to bring about reconciliation within deeply wounded communities. This is done through healing conferences and trauma workshops, prayer ministry, aimed at equipping and training, in particular the leaders in the church and in the military. Flame has a vision that by transforming the culture of the military in these countries, with long histories of violence and abuse, this will change the nation. And Jan has recently recounted the story of a lieutenant colonel in the South Sudan army who testified at a flame conference that before he'd heard and been changed by the teaching on forgiveness, he'd been ready to kill someone that had offended him. Now he was ready to forgive. Not only has that decision saved one man's life, but I suspect his new state of grace will have an even greater influence on the attitude and behavior of the men under his command. Now, I said at the beginning of this address that if we're truly to honor the fallen, we must accept our responsibility to maintain and build on the peace and freedom they have fought so hard to achieve. And yet, as we gather on this Remembrance Sunday in November 2019, it is hard to recall a time in recent memory when our nation was so divided, when the tone of our public discourse was so antagonistic, so confrontational, and yes, so vengeful. It feels as though everybody is shouting, but nobody is listening. What will it take to bring healing and reconciliation to this land of ours? Will Brexit do it? Another referendum? General election? Maybe a public spending spree after so many years of austerity? Well, I'm not making a case for the merits or otherwise of those particular courses of action, but I doubt that any of them in and of themselves are sufficient to really bring this country together. On the other hand, I wonder what a difference it would make if everyone in our country woke up tomorrow morning determined, as we have read in Romans, to live at peace with everyone as far as it depends on you. If our politicians in conducting their election campaigns were careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If the guiding principle on our social media was bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. I know it sounds like a utopian dream, but it starts with each one of us accepting our own role in shaping the environment that we live in, both real and virtual, in helping to make our own families and communities places of love and charity and kindness and selflessness. And in doing so, we'll not only be honoring the sacrifice of those we remember today, we'll also be offering the light and hope and healing of Jesus Christ to a world that so desperately needs it. It is a tough assignment, and we can't do that in our own strength. So in closing, let me say this. Earlier on, I described the steps that needed to be taken for true reconciliation to take place. And I want to close by saying that each one of us has an opportunity to follow those steps ourselves in being reconciled to God.
Is that necessary? Well, yes, because our relationship with him has been damaged by the things that we have done wrong. But if we're willing to see that relationship restored, if we're willing to openly speak the truth and seek forgiveness for the harms that we have committed, then the good news is that God will forgive us and accept us with open arms. And that's because Jesus has already paid the price for what we've done wrong. He has sacrificed himself on the cross. And now his resurrection clears the way for us to have life and freedom and peace. So on this Remembrance Sunday, I pray that each one of us will step back out into this world, into the sunshine, thank God, filled with the Spirit of Christ and ready to spread God's reconciling love and healing power to this, our hurting nation. Amen.